Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, my name is Alan Moore and you're listening to Gaelic Games Europe's twice-weekly podcast, This Sunday's Game. A very warm welcome to This Sunday's Game. As the club championships are well underway in Ireland, we're going to go to Ireland to speak with RT Sports' Raf Diallo. Raf, of course, is a Leitrim man and has produced some of the best sports content for RTE during the lockdown. We're going to ask him what it's like being from Leitrim, having his hopes and dreams built up each year, and also what it was like to have a one-on-one interview with his footballing idol. But first, a bit of news. The Irish government's decision to halt entry into phase four of the COVID-19 roadmap is a hammer blow to GAA, according to John Horan. Now less than 200 people can attend outdoor events into mid-August, instead of the 500 that the GAA had been preparing for. John Horan told RT Radio that if you work out the dimensions of a GAA pitch, that allows for social distancing of four metres between everybody attending the match. We have also encouraged everybody to wear face masks, so I think these figures are a bit severe on us as an organisation. And I openly call on the T-shirt Cantonshire to go back and review those figures for us as an organisation. Kilkenny legend Henry Shefflin fully backs John Horan's point of view, stating that GAA volunteers have acted totally responsibly during this pandemic. He said that it is very, very difficult on our club officials, who are the volunteers who make the players do what they do. It's very difficult to turn around to them and say, no, you can't go to the game. I'd be totally for what John Horn has said. And finally, as Real Madrid wrap up under La Liga in Scotland, they are crossing fingers that you'll be allowed to have fans in Stadia by October. Professor Jason Leach said that we've not set a date, we're very hopeful that in the autumn sometime we'll be able to run some test events and then get crowds back. He went on to say that we cannot be left behind by the English Premier League. And now to Dublin and Raf Diallo. Okay, and I'm delighted to welcome on to this Sunday's game. All the way from, well, I was going to say all the way from Leitrim, but he's all the way from Dublin, of course, today. He is sports journalist with RTE. Raf Diallo, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? Very good indeed. Uh, so we've got miserable weather here in Moscow. So we've got we, we've kind of got Irish summer weather. So I don't know if that makes you feel any better. Um, well, we've a nice sunny day today, actually, which is uh, well, we've actually had some decent weather other well during this kind of lockdown period for the most part, uh, which uh, probably um, on one hand can be a little bit depressing as well because uh, normally you'd be out and about, but. Uh, <laughs> Where you know you're, I think we're all kind of uh, staying home for the most part. Well, you can still go out for walks and things, so you can still enjoy it to a degree. But it's a it's a little bit different, obviously, than what we would normally be used to. First question to you: um, Why should Leitrim be everyone's favourite second team? Because most people like Mayo a little. Oh, just in terms of the county team, well, most people like Mayo a little bit, except maybe uh, Dublin fans and uh, Galway and Ross Garman, probably, uh, and maybe Sligo. And, <laughs> actually the rest of Connors really but uh, no I, I suppose we're uh, for people who remember 1994 I think people like the underdog story and we're kind of the ultimate underdog in that sense uh, within uh, within inter-county football and um, generally when they're talking about you know the, the smaller county you'd be you know it's more than likely they'll mention Leitrim as the example of what the so-called uh, weaker county or smaller county or whatever um, is so whenever we do have that moment of success uh, nobody begrudges us that and I think I remember like I went to the um, we were in the division four um, league final last year which was quite a major event and it was kind of covered on the news and everything else and 
uh, was the first time we'd been to Croke Park since uh, I think 2006 and pr- prior to that um, since 1994 so it was a kind of rare day and you know the whole county descends on the capital and I think people just look at it quite warmly uh, because we're rarely there and it's a, it's a kind of feel-good story um, so yeah and obviously at the same time as well because it is so rare you know Leitrim people who live abroad as well were kind of floating home as well and it was just it was just a nice it was just a nice kind of story and I don't I don't think none of the other counties views as a threat so that's why I think uh, we're a nice perfect second uh, second county to support because it is something that just brought up now is that the amount of Leitrim people, especially, for example, I met quite a lot in London. There's a great kind of diaspora and Leitrim is you know, one of the smallest counties in terms of population in Ireland. Was that sort of difficult growing up? I mean, because like the focus would have been on all the kids like, to try and get them playing you know, Gaelic football. Were you, were you under pressure as a kid in school to play? No, like my primary school wouldn't have been a sport sporting school in any code at all. And um, it was um, actually there were when I started in 1993, uh, there were 11 students in the entire school. So you can't even you can't even fill a football. You can barely fill a football like starting lineup in a football team with that. Um, you know, it's you know we have a lot of rural schools in Ireland, obviously in different parts and. Um, like our, our that primary school was in the town itself, but just at the bottom of town, and there was a boys' school and a girls' school, so they would have done sport in terms of like Gaelic football and other things. Um, our school didn't. Um, by that consequence, like if you were going to get involved in sport, you were doing it outside of uh, outside of your school environment. Um, to be honest, even to put together a five-a-side team would have been a problem back in 1993. Obviously, the school grew. By 2001, I think there were 30 students when I was leaving um, to go up to secondary school. Um, so you could, at that point, maybe you could uh, fill a football team. But when you're talking about the entire school, that's like from junior infants to uh, um, to sixth class. So and there's a lot of age grades there. Um, you know, you might have five year olds playing in the under 12s or something if you were to if <laughs> you're going down that route. So yeah, no, I never, I actually never played uh, Gaelic football at club. Um, school or um, or actually any level really intercounty or whatever um, a probably wasn't good enough and b just it wasn't uh, it was just wasn't something that popped up on the radar um, so in the end never it never happened um, but as I said the primary school was that small that it was we were <laughs> no there was no chance of us ever uh, putting together a school team. So then, how was it? Just because that kind of that you could feel the passion, like with GAA, that it was just kind of you're you're supporting your county no matter what. Even if you're not playing the sport, you're going to follow Leitrim through thick and thin. Yeah, I think in in Ireland we're obviously, and I know yourself, you're obviously from Louth, and I'm sure you're very proud of your county. I think we're a very county based um, culture in that sense. It's the way um, it's the way you're brought up. Um, you kind of you're all it's all it's not quite a nationality but it's not far off either um you know you you view your neighboring counties with a bit of uh, healthy suspicion obviously <laughs> obviously there's a friendliness there a friendly rivalry <clears throat> just the nature of GAA um you know it's not like uh, it's not like some other sports or you know in some other countries sometimes where things boil over and there's like proper derbies where it can turn violent there's not even a hint of that uh, when it comes to GAA but uh, yeah it's a, it's a sense i guess you know, you're raised in Leitrim and you end up, uh, you love the place and therefore anything connected to it, like your county team, um, is something you just naturally support um, and follow. And uh, especially, I think, for us, um, given success is quite rare and we don't often get mentioned in any space, whether it be sporting or otherwise, um, as often as other counties, whenever there is a bit of success or 
and um, whenever we're punching above our weight, um, it's good to it's good to see it's good to see we're getting covered uh, one way or another. And I'm one of those like I love my love my parish, love my town, and love my county and country as well. Um, and not necessarily in any order, but just you know they're all connected. Because I, I, it was something I know we we joked about before is that uh, you were always known as first as the vet's son. And now your dad is known as Raf's dad. Going through that, the links to Cameroon, you had a brilliant chance to meet someone who kind of anointed you when you're only a four-month-old. That's Oman Bayek. Uh, Bayek. Um, what was it like to interview your like a, a, a sporting idol that for me is only in second place to Roger Miller? in Cameroon. Yeah, it was a bit of a weird one. So like basically family background, neither of my parents are from Cameroon, but uh, dad was working there uh, for much of the 80s. Um, so I was born in 89, but born in Germany. And then um, dad was still working in Cameroon. So within a couple of months, uh, we were back and uh, it was four months old. Uh, we were on a flight, uh, I think as is said in the article, which is on the RT website. And we flew, um, um, I didn't really have any choice in the matter given my age and we were flying westwards to um, I think it was Guinea where they're actually from and uh, the Cameroon team happened to board the flight board the same flight but just uh, one city further on um, from where my parents had and uh, just they were going to a match to play against Nigeria in a qualifier which was, would have been uh, last month 31 years ago and uh, the footballer who sat down right beside my parents was uh, Mr. François Omambique, who hadn't yet, it, would, it was just a year before he was about to kind of make history and announce himself to the, to the globe with that uh, famous goal against Argentina. So yeah, he was uh, like, I've been told that story since I was definitely in primary school, since I was seven or eight. So I was always, I was aware of, I was aware of the story. Obviously I had no recollection of it myself. Um, and then you know, obviously we're in Italian 19 nostalgia periods, at least last month, uh, a lot of it being focused on Ireland naturally because it was such a historic thing for us. But uh, obviously we weren't the only country that uh, made a mark at that tournament. Cameroon are kind of the the other story apart from ourselves that were a big one. So um, I just kind of chanced my arms to see could, could I get a hold of Francois Onambique, given and especially given that he was now Cameroon's assistant manager, which meant there was a little bit of a way in there. If you can go through the Cameroon FA, through their um, press officer, who's called Parfait Siki. So I was able to track that guy down, get, uh, uh, you know, contact him, ask him if it's a possibility to interview the assistant manager. And then, yeah, I got the number passed on, contacted him through uh, WhatsApp. And then we did a kind of WhatsApp video call, which is uh, the picture of them that got tweeted, uh, which <laughs> obviously I think it was surreal then, you know, that, as, as like what basically my parents said afterwards that um you know they sit on a flight with their baby with their baby son and uh, they don't you know they have no conception of the fact that the baby's going to become a sports journalist who's going to grow up in Ireland and then do an interview with the person they're sit that they're sitting beside uh, for the national broadcaster you know you can't really make it up so it was uh, yeah it was a bit surreal um obviously they have more memory of uh, the 31 years ago than I would have but uh, yeah it was just yeah it was it was a fun story it was a fun story to do and he kind of remembered the journey anyway as well which kind of made it uh, extra kind of special I guess as well. In that of course we all are of course having the nostalgia um, of that kind of let's just say golden period of Irish sport when we had from boxing to cycling to football things were going well and even in GAA we had 
you know, great finals and Tipperary bursting through and Dublin Mees rivalry and so on and so forth. So there was a lot sort of happening at that time. Jack's Army, of course, was one that was major now. Of course, you were too little to remember at that time. But what kind of influence did that kind of buzz around football in a small you know, town of Leitrim have on forming you as a, a lover of sport? I think we just, um, you know, um, you know, we moved to, as I said, in, to Ireland in 1993. So Jack Charlton was still in charge. I didn't like football at the time. I was too young probably to have a real understanding of it. But uh, yeah, there was a sense like, but even regardless of whether you liked the sport or not, like I obviously knew Packy Bonner was, I knew Paul McGrath was. These were kind of like the national heroes. Um, so regardless of whether you were interested in sport um, or not, you kind of knew who they were. And you obviously knew who Jack Charlton was. And he's this kind of um, overlord figure, the... Um, whether you knew anything about Italian 90 or USA 94, but you kind of knew this is the boss, this is our football boss, this is the guy we uh, we have to look up to. So you have a natural fondness for them. Um, and I, I suppose I remember the Mick McCarthy years more firsthand, but uh, given, you know, that... Um, given that these, like, you know, the Jack Charlton team himself and the players, they were the first group of legends, you do grow up with them, I suppose, in their shadow, or maybe not even shadow, I suppose, afterglow would be the would be the right word. And obviously I was getting into Premier League then, more like Manchester United around that time as well. Um, so it all kind of blended together. And, um, you know, over the years, I've been lucky as well to interview a lot of the players from that Irish team at the time, from that generation. And, you know, some great stories. And um, I suppose it's it's kind of fun for us, for our generation to kind of, dip ourselves back in in hindsight you know we don't have the opportunity to have been there and kind of experienced it firsthand but um it's nice to it's i suppose it's nice to kind of peel back the layers and kind of look back at a time where we actually were definitely punching way above our weight and probably our our greatest era um ever where we were you know we were mixing it with england we were mixing it with uh, italy argentinas etc on the biggest stage for the very first time and they're, they're kind of never-ending stories so you know it, that's why obviously it was very sad to hear about jack's passing um in that kind of um in that context as well because it's it's kind of it's like feels a bit like the end of a chapter in a way obviously many of the players are still you know are still around and everything but this was the team that Jack kind of formed and put together. And he's the, he's the one all those players are fond of and would always kind of point towards um, in terms of uh, the person who kind of guided them um, through this, you know, glorious era that, it, you know, if you watch reeling in the ears and things, it's one of those kind of huge highlights. You know, I, of course I wanted to mention about Jack Charlton's passing, his, the funerals on Tuesday, won't keep up too much more of your time, but you dug back into Ireland's first great victory in Iceland, which I remember, and I mentioned to you last night that I remember listening to the radio and reports coming in from Reykjavik and thinking, this is great, Ireland have won something. And my dad just kind of going, yeah, whatever, if, you know, it's usual. How much fun was it to do that, to dig into that history that a lot of people had either forgotten about or almost ignored? Yeah, I think it was the main thing was it's because um, very shortly afterwards, obviously, Euro 88 happens and then Italia 90 and then USA 94. So this this success 
uh, in 86 in Iceland, uh, it feels smaller or it's a, just a, a small footnote because something way bigger happens afterwards that we, you know, that culturally we all end up talking about. So it was good fun to go back um, to something that wasn't really, I've never really seen covered in, in that much depth. And uh, I suppose the fun thing was to go back to talk to, like I talked to four players from the time. Um, the likes of Jim Beglin, who unfortunately, sadly, due to injury, wasn't able to be part of the success to follow. Um, Frank Stapleton um, as well, who was very good with his time. Niall Quinn um, also was another. And uh, there was uh, Ray Houghton, obviously, who was, uh, you know, played such a key role in Euro 88 and then obviously scored in US, or USA 94 as well. So it was good fun to kind of peel back layers. And the thing you always know with the Jack Charlton team and that Jack Charlton team, you know there'd be just good, funny stories. And there were a few about Jack as well um, in that, like uh, when he first meets them at the airport um, on the way over and he clearly doesn't recognise the players. He kind of walks past and then I can't remember which player had to go after him and kind of pull him back and kind of go, and these are <laughs> these are your players that you're going to be flying over to Iceland. So there's nice, really nice uh, kind of anecdotes like that kind of heartwarming stuff. Um, so it's good to, good to see all that. And obviously because a lot of the games weren't, televised here there's only minimal footage of one of the matches on um, on YouTube therefore we don't have too much detail of what went on but through the players and um, stories then we were able to at least peel back what happened on the pitch beyond the score line and who the goal scorers were yeah it was rough and tumble as well from from uh, what you reported I mean a lot more than I imagined like there was a fair few kicking matches over there as well um, moving on just a couple more questions uh, Raf. first one uh, you had a great interview with Connor Swain uh, the Wexford uh, player now it was all centred for me it's around kind of the development and launch of his um, his new business what really stood out for you about him and why did you pick him in particular well, at the time, um, I think the GPA had highlighted the fact that um, he was an example of somebody who had sought kind of, uh, you know, a little bit of, uh, I suppose, advice and everything just during this kind of difficult lockdown period um, to tr- in terms of trying to get his business off the ground. So I think the main thing was that, uh, well, that uh, kind of jumped out to me in his story is he wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't reluctant to go and find help to help him with his business idea um, because obviously... Um, I've never, I've never run a business, so I, I don't really know much about that side of things. But I would imagine, you know, there's so many different layers and things, and uh, you know, it doesn't matter who you are or at what level. Um, any bit of advice, I'm sure, is helpful to people. So uh, it was good. It was good to see that he had actually sought that kind of advice, and you know, he has an idea and he wants to see it come to fruition. And again, whether you're in business or if you're working in media or anything else. Um, taking what is the nub of an idea and then trying to turn it into something bigger um, is uh, is always interesting to see. And obviously, as he said in the piece, he's kind of, he's only at the start of what he's trying to do with uh, with the cafe and everything. And, you know, it'll be about brand, getting his own brand of coffee and different things. And yeah, it'd be good to see and hopefully best of luck to him as well. He obviously has an idea, wants to see it through. So um, yeah, it's good to see. Finally, um, you, it's something that was, of course, interesting to people who've been, you know, living in Europe or, or sort of like uh, not just living, but like you know, playing sport in Europe and involved in Europe. Um, you, you're doing a, a series now on Irish footballers who went to Europe, like for example, Don Givens when he was in Switzerland, and I remember that and how well he'd been doing. And then you sort of brought it more to light, and as well, was that Paddy Mulligan going into um, Greece? Yeah, Greece. Yeah. Um, you know, there's so many Irish players whose stories are not told uh, of the success they had in in um, on the continent. 
uh, I'm just thinking of uh, Liam Buckley playing in Spain and playing against, I think it was Gary Lineker. Uh, yeah, Barcelona, uh, Lineker's Barcelona debut, I think, actually. Exa- yeah. Exactly, you know, when he's down in Spain. So a lot of these guys who, like, you know, John Bourne as well in France, and all these guys who did so, so well. Um, first of all, what, what inspired you to do that? And what have been the most interesting sort of uh, pieces that you got back from it and something that we can maybe look, look forward to reading? Yeah, well, I suppose um, I've always had an interest in European football anyway. I mean, I grew up in the Gazetta Football Italia era, which would have been the kind of early, from the early 90s all the way to the 2000s. And, uh, you know, as much as you watch the Premier League or you watch the Ireland team, football is such a global sport. There's so many interesting stories and leagues out there. Um, and there haven't been too many, like other countries, obviously, you know, whether they be French players or Spanish players, they do tend to export their players to leagues outside of their own country we haven't done it quite as much I think a lot of our a lot of our great players have ended up playing in the UK and not really going further beyond that and they haven't had to in most cases you know the likes of Roy Keane obviously is a legend at Manchester United you know he didn't really need to seek anything else um, but I've always especially now that it's it's harder to break into the Premier League and it's become such a global league I would love to see more Irish players kind of try their hand in leagues, whether it be the Netherlands or Spain or wherever it is. And obviously it's it's easier said than done, but there is other things they can learn in terms of, I suppose, opening their horizons, which a few of those players I spoke to kind of discussed in their own, through their own experiences and also learn something in a football sense because some of those leagues are extremely technical in terms of the way they develop players. So it'd be good to see more lads uh, just kind of spread a lot around the continent, uh, much like some of the similar sized countries like Denmark and and others in Croatia, etc. Around around Europe, um, I suppose as um, as you said, I talked to Paddy Mulligan. Obviously, I've known him quite well over the last few years, and it's always got some great stories. We had talked about his time at Palace and Icos briefly over the years, but uh, not in that depth. And uh, it was good to kind of. I suppose, learn the bits off the pitch as well as on the pitch and stories. And then obviously Don Givens, I actually hadn't been aware previously that he had played in Switzerland um, and for as long as he did as well. So it was interesting to kind of um, explore that um, story again. I want to kind of look at the on and off the pitch because obviously on the pitch is interesting, but living in a different country has its challenges, particularly if it's in a country where um, English isn't widely necessarily widely spoken so it's good to see how players adapt to that and then obviously there was Frank Stapleton which is actually the first one I did and it it's how it, the spark kind of happened for it because we were it was during the chat about the Iceland thing and then just at the very end I kind of just uh, asked him would he be interested in talking a bit about uh, his time at Ajax and he was like yeah perfect and uh yeah, we did that at the end, did that first piece, and then I thought, look, let's carry it forwards. And then um, there was a second piece with Michael Doyle, um, who was in Denmark with Liam Miller about 20 years ago, um, which again was interesting. And there'll be a few more. I haven't, uh, haven't identified who the definite next person will be, but there are, you know, obviously the likes of Ian Hart played in Spain, um, Steve Finnan played in Spain. Coincidentally, I was at one of his matches in the 08-09 season when he was at Espanyol. They came to play Sevilla when I was doing my Erasmus year there and I was at the match um, unfortunately he went down with an injury but it was just uh, this kind of weird coincidence that you know there's some, a couple, about two or three Irish lads in the stand <laughs> and uh, an Ireland international that we've kind of grown up watching um, on the pitch as well in a different country so that was good to see so yeah there's de- there's definite stories Aidan McGeady obviously in, in in Russia where you are obviously yeah. and um, there's a few and obviously um, there's uh, your man from Cat or 
Killian Sheridan um, from Cavan, who's been all over Europe and uh, hasn't hasn't actually come come back to the UK or Ireland. So there are yeah there are plenty of examples to explore, and uh, I'll kind of go through them one by one as uh, as they come through. So we'll see we'll see who's next, um, and then obviously um, I will tweet if there is uh, if there's confirmation of one or if of one or two or whatever. Well, that's good because now you, you've there's actually kind of those, uh, the six degrees of separation or whatever you call it with uh, um, Kevin Bacon. Killian Sheridan was on the podcast as well, so just so you know, because he, he he was actually oh, right. yeah, he's quite a big Gaelic player. He played county for I think county minor for Cavan and actually had a trial down in the AFL as well. So there's a you know and and the moves that he's made, where it be to Israel or to now he's in Poland, of course. You know, it's it's kind of. I think it's something that I agree with you. I think it's something that a lot of Irish players should look to do. You know, not just to sit in League Two or League One and you know pick up a paper. To go abroad because you could really develop and do something different. You know, it's well, yeah. it's a simple thing. Yeah. Is it, before we go, um, will it be a Halloween scare for Mayo because you have them in the first round of Championship? Then if you get past Mayo, you've got either London or Roscommon. So there could be a run to the comic final if, if you do well there could be yeah I don't think we'll beat Mayo though <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> and my old uh, my old Team 33 colleague Joe Coffey would not like to hear obviously um, as any listeners to the show back in the day would know um, he's a very proud Mayo man I don't think he'd like to hear me uh, suggest that there would be a massive scalp take in there but uh, no um, I think the main thing is look I think we just want to see inter-county football back at the end of the year and um, regardless of what the results are you know um, because obviously um, circumstances dictate at the moment uh, with what's happening in the world that there isn't uh, there isn't inter-county football at the moment fortunately the club stuff is back um, now um, in every county um, but yeah I think the main thing is that we at least you know our counties are back on the pitch hopefully um, at the end of the year and uh, you know we can we can start seeing some action again and those rivalries uh, those friendly rivalries can uh, restart um, <laughs> in earnest That's great Listen Raph Diallo sports, sports journalist with RT thank you so much for your time and uh, here's hoping that Leitrim do get one over on Mayo this year Alright thanks a million hopefully we do <laughs> As a final whistle blows on this episode of This Sunday's Game, thank you Rafti Allah for your time today and of course we'll be back on Wednesday. So until then, take care of yourselves and each other. Mm-hmm.